Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. I wanted to have the children come up this morning because I want all of us to strip off all the trappings of Christmas and realize that Jesus came from the very beginning. He was in all things like us. The older I've gotten, the more it's amazing to me that Jesus didn't sort of parachute in, you know, at 30 when the important things started. But there's an awful lot of history before he began to speak publicly. We only have a couple glimpses of it. We have a glimpse of him at the, uh, at the temple showing his love for his father's word at a very young age. They were amazed at his knowledge of the word. And we have uh, the scene of him at the beginning of his ministry, of his mother trying to tell him what to do, and him acting like he wasn't, but then going ahead and doing it anyhow. Um, And then we have him as a little baby. And that's why the babies are up here this morning. And that little baby came to a people who had been plucked out of uh, their non-identity, all right? In other words, they had been nothing, and that's what God said to them. I didn't choose you because you were strong or wise or powerful. I chose you because you were nothing. That's what he said to the Jews. So, so, So don't get on your high horse. All right, And he plucked them out, and he, he, he set them up on a high place, and the way he set them up was by giving him his law. It's a very interesting thing that what defined the Jews was the law. We have such a negative attitude towards the law, but that law was God's kindness to, the, to them that they would know what was right and wrong. One of the great tragedies of America today is that we, back at the time of... Uh, of the Puritans and back in colonial America, we had the highest literacy rate that there's ever been in the history of the world. And that was because the people of this country taught their children to read so that they would know the word of God. And now we're, we're falling all over ourselves trying to forget it and, and gag it and silence it and, and, and repudiate it. So these people had been given God's law, and they had been given prophets who applied that law to them, and they had been given promises, and so they lived in the awareness of God's holiness. And they therefore lived in an awareness that just got down to the taproot of them, of their own sinfulness. You know, you could, you, could, you could be a Pharisee and think that you were fulfilling the law. But anybody who's tried to keep the law, you know, maybe especially the speed limit. You know, you're just completely aware that, like Augustine talks about, you know, wanting to go across the boundary to steal fruit from his neighbor's tree. The minute you're told that's your neighbor's tree, what do you want to do? You want to go over and steal the fruit, Right? And so the Jews had been, had, been, had been very aware of God's holiness, very aware of their sinfulness, but also aware that God promised that there would be a coming Messiah. And how that Messiah would come, when, where, what he would be like, 
he would be of the lineage of David. And the Jewish scribes went through all the Old Testament, they found 500 places where they said that the coming Messiah had been prophesied, had been predicted. 500. And so the Jews at this point were living in indignity. They weren't off in a Babylonian captivity. They were at home, but they were still living in a captivity because they were under the Roman Empire. And it was undignified. It was shameful. To have Herod over you is about like having Donald Trump over you. You know, it's, it's not a point of pride. I don't know anybody that's taking pride in Donald Trump being our president. We might be happy. I am. Because I've seen the alternative and it isn't nice. But, you know, we don't take pride in that sort of a president. That was pretty analogous to what Herod was like. He was, but it was worse because Herod was the representative of a foreign empire that occupied the land. And so this was the situation among the Jews. And the Jews knew that when these 500 passages would be fulfilled with the coming of the Messiah, that that would be a great day. But what exactly would be the greatness? What would the greatness of the Messiah be like? And I don't know about you, but I'll cop to the fact that if I had been alive at the time, to me, greatness would have been something that would have gotten me out from under Herod. I wouldn't even have cared so much about my own home if we could just get rid of Herod. <laughs> get rid of this guy, you know? Can we have a Jewish king? Can we have somebody who fears God rather than this godless, bloodthirsty, wicked, wicked man? It was clear that the Messiah would have God's glory on him, but what would the glory look like? What would the glory of the Messiah be? Again, we had the little babies come up. You look at these little ones, and you know what's in their diaper. And so what is their glory? And if any baby has glory, you know, you think of a baby being born to the royalty over in Buckingham Palace, you know. And you can imagine that there would be glory, right? But as a baby, you really have trouble making it out to be glorious. You know, that's why you coo and simper over babies. Because actually, they're not glorious. <laughs> you know, they don't have a lot of stature. They don't have strength. About all they can do is cry, <laughs> right? <laughs> Some of you know about babies, right, Ann? You know, they're not glorious. We are extremely tender with babies, and it's precisely because they have no glory. That's how we cover over things that are uh, abject and weak and poor.
the shepherds had the birth of this baby announced to them, and the announcement was from the angels, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, what? A Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And when the angels said Christ, everybody knew that that was the Messiah because the word Christ means the anointed one. This is the king. This is the anointed one. This is the long-promised Messiah. And he is the Savior. So being Jews, they knew the angel was telling them at long last the long-awaited Messiah had come. Now, of course the shepherds wanted to believe the angel's message when they were out there in the field. Because every Jew alive, just like generations of Jews before them, looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. But the very fact that it was an event which was surrounded by so much hope in their national consciousness meant that it would be hard to believe that it actually happened now. You've looked forward to something for so long, it's, it becomes very difficult to believe that the day has arrived. I remember when somebody was giving, uh, was giving a couple tickets to us to go to the IU marching band uh, concert, somebody in the band. And it was a big event because we were going to drive from Partyville, which didn't have a lot of dignity, you know, starting with the name, and to Madison and then go into the, you know, the assembly hall or wherever it was. I don't remember where it was. And then this big marching band, and it was just hoopla. And we didn't have any hoopla in our life in Partyville. You know, it's like lytic, you know. Not a lot happened. And so... Joseph and I were going to go, and Joseph was told that the day was coming, and every day he would say, is this the day? You know, is, is today the day we get to go? Is today we... And then finally, when you tell him, yes, this is the day, he's it, sort of like, oh, 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 you know? And then you hope he won't be disappointed. Well, I hate to tell you, but the Jews were all disappointed. And the disappointment started immediately. There are other occasions in Scripture when God announced wonderful news to men, and they were unable to believe it. The Lord God sent his angel to Gideon. You remember that Gideon was out in the threshing floor? And they were under oppression then also. <coughs> the Midianites were oppressing them, occupying their land. And God promised Gideon that he would be with him and give him victory. Do you remember, though, Gideon's response was to say, what? Show me a sign. This is what they'd been waiting for, to be released, but Gideon didn't believe that God was saying what he was saying to him. And he said, show me a sign. And that's where the Gideon's fleece, and if you read the story, it's not just, um, show me a sign, the fleece comes and he does it. It's just this prolonged story of his unbelief. Then second, you remember that the Lord commanded Moses to go back to Egypt and lead the Israelites out of their slavery to the Egyptians. And Moses said, hey, what if the, what if the Israelites don't believe me? You know, what if they don't listen to me? What if they say, the Lord didn't really appear to you? And you remember that the Lord gave him signs that he was to use to show them that God had actually called him to come back and liberate them. Do you remember this? And what were the signs? Well, the first sign was the rod which he threw down and it would turn into a snake 
And when he picked it up, it would turn into a rod again. But that wasn't enough for Moses. And so then God gave him the sign of the hand. He'd put it into his cloak and bring it out. It would be leprous, which was a death sentence. And he put it back in and, <laughs> you know, you can imagine. So God sent you to me? How do I know that? You know, like, what do you think of that? <laughs> what do you think of that? <laughs> But two signs weren't enough. The third one was the power to take water from the Nile River and have it turn into blood as it was poured out onto the ground. And these were the signs that God gave to Moses. And just as God was willing to build up the faith of the people of the Old Testament through signs, God was willing to deal with the people of the New Testament through signs, okay? Luke 2, 1 to 7, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of David into Judea, into the, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was the house and lineage of David. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. So here's the news. Today, in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. And what was the sign that God gave to the shepherds? Well, in verse 12, as the angel speaks to the shepherds, he says, this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Four books of the Bible are given to telling the history of the life of Jesus here on earth. And of these four books, only two of them even mention Jesus' birth or childhood. Of those two, one is Matthew, the other Luke. Mark and John begin their story when Jesus was a grown man. But of these two, Matthew and Luke, Matthew actually begins his account with this short statement. This is all it says. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. That's all it says. The text skips from the angel's appearance to Joseph telling him about Mary's pregnancy by the Holy Spirit to the coming of the wise men bearing gifts. About all we find out in this history of Matthew is that Christ was born to Mary in Bethlehem during the reign of King Herod. And so the few details we do have of the birth come from the pen of what? Of Dr. Laban. That's the doctor that many, many of the mothers use in our church. He sends us baklava. This year, 
it must have been a productive year for our church because we got two boxes of baklava this year. You know what baklava is? It's like a really sort of syrupy, sweet kind of Greek or Orthodox or Russian or something. And it's, it's, it's unbelievably sweet. And so it does make sense that it's the physician who writes a gospel that has an account. You look through Luke and it's this way all through what he writes. You know, again and again, Luke has the tender child woman view of things. Like a physician would, he's very aware of the tenderness of the scene. He has a wonderful account of every part of it. So it comes from the pen of Dr. Luke. Now, no part of the account is insignificant. All of the parts contain food for our faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord. The signs that God gave to the shepherds, which would lead them to the newborn baby, who was the promise when the Messiah, were that they would find him wrapped in swaddling clothes and that they would find him lying in a manger. Those were the signs. During our celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ today and tomorrow, how can our faith in him be strengthened as a result of reminding ourselves today of God's signs to the shepherds? The images that go along with the celebration of Christmas for us today are numerous. Let me list a few. The Grinch, the Salvation Army Ringers, the Star of David, Scrooge, the wise men, Frosty the snowman, Santa Claus, Christmas trees, shepherds watching their sheep, that one is declining, snow-covered wooden bridges, especially here in Indiana, Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer, singing angels. Now, I've left out a few, but there's one image that I've left out that for most of us is the most important image of Christmas. When I was a child, we, we, had, uh, we had an awful lot of sweet, tender things. Um, I remember distinctly as, as a little boy that if it began to snow in Philadelphia, my dad would come into my bedroom and pick me up out of bed in the middle of the night, whatever time it was, and he would carry me to the front, front bedroom because outside of the front bedroom were the street lights and you could see the snow falling through the street lights. And he'd hold me in his arms and we'd just watch the snowfall. We had good traditions. Uh, we had every year a wonderful Christmas uh, pageant where the entire uh, Christmas, uh, the entire Christian school that my parents had started in Philly, Delaware County Christian School with some other couples, we would celebrate Christmas by having the, the entire school uh, recite uh, the King James Version of the Christmas story, and that comes down to us today uh, because you all use the intonation that Mrs. Schneider taught me as a kindergartner. You don't know that, but, and they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the, Mary and Joseph weren't lying in the manger. The babe was lying in the manger. So you all hesitate because we've taught you to hesitate. And that's Mrs. Schneider living on. She's the best teacher in the world. Uh, and then I went to the worst teacher in the world. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> my sister still can't stand my first grade teacher. She's probably very good, actually. 
But there was something, and so our home, we, my father would go around, he'd dress up like Santa Claus. He, even when he had black hair, he had a white beard. And so he would make his hair white, and he'd put on this huge, and he was sort of like me, kind of adipose you know? And he'd put on this suit, this red velvet with white, you know, and he'd, he'd make his hair white, and he'd go around to all the houses and neighbors, ho, 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 on Christmas morning, knock on the doors, you know? And we would always go out and Christmas carol, everybody in the neighborhood. My brother Nathan would bring his trombone. And it was always cold. And often the trombone would ice up on him, you know. (laughs) And we'd sing. And we never kept alcohol in our house growing up. Never, right? It wasn't that my parents were teetotalers. They weren't. But we just didn't keep it in the house. But we had these these, uh, Roman Catholic Poles who were our neighbors, the Kaminskys. And the Kaminskys would, in the spirit of the night, they'd invite us into the house, and we'd go in, and my father would drink warm alcohol with Mr. Kaminsky. And we'd all sit around watching it. It was so neighborly, you know. We had guests come for Christmas. We never had a Christmas of just our family. There were always oddballs. You know, every church has the oddballs, you know. Don't worry, not you. And they would come in and and be oblivious to all the work that was going on around them as they sat and talked. And uh, we'd go sledding. We had winter picnics. My sister was absolutely firm about that. You had to have picnics in wintertime. And so you'd go out to some stupid park and you'd shake the whole time you were there. One Christmas, my mother got it in her head that we would go on a sleigh ride. (laughs) It was the most awful thing you could ever imagine. (laughs) The sleigh weren't a sleigh. It was actually just a little cart with like horses. And it pulled you around in a little corral that was about the size of half of this thing, and it was all manure (laughs) and dirt, and it was freezing cold, and we got on this cart, and they went around, and it's there. I can remember Bruce and I on the back, because there wasn't room in the cart for all of us, and somebody has to stand on the back of the cart and hold on, you know, and he kept saying as we went around, are we having fun yet? (laughs) You know, so we had a lot of traditions. That didn't make the tradition list, but the winter picnics, dad being Santa Claus, we always gave dad Scrooge gifts, because he was always a Scrooge at Christmas until he began to dress up like, we had the Christmas, we had the, uh, we had the Christmas program for the school, of course we had a turkey dinner, There are all kinds of wonderful, wonderful. But there was one thing that was best of all, and that was over on the mantel above our fireplace. We had a very, very small uh, little sort of lean-to with straw on the roof, and underneath it were the figurines for, uh, for, for the manger. It was a manger scene. And I loved that thing. So why is the manger, I'll bet for many of you, the image of the manger is, is the most tender scene of Christmas. So why is it tender? This shall be a sign to you. I dressed up today. 
But I didn't dress up so we would be proud. I dressed up to honor Jesus. You think of the wise men and the, the incongruity of the wise men, the kings, we three kings, you know, and gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and this little baby. And that's how we welcome Jesus into this world. And so the question that we should ask ourselves is, why didn't Jesus bypass the womb? Why didn't Jesus bypass the womb? He could have. You know, it would have been nothing for God to parachute him in at 30 years of age to begin his public ministry. And you know, most Christians today who who call themselves Christians uh, do think that that would be entirely fine. Because what they count as important is that Jesus lived among us and showed us what And then you can insert whatever you want. You know, it can be what true enlightenment, what true progress, what what a truly evolved, what what a what a progressive man who unfortunately lacked all the the conveniences of technology, you know, without Alexa, you know. What what a man could be without Alexa. You know, you think about the view of Silicon Valley of Jesus. It was kind of pathetic that he wasn't born here, but you know. Given the, the, the limitations of the time of his existence, he sure did show us what a man could be, right? This is the view of most Christians. You know, that Jesus came to teach, give us the Sermon on the Mount, talk about peace, you know, because that's what Jesus talked about, you know, right? You know, right? He just talked about peace. Jesus was so peaceful, right? He was so peaceful that that's why they had to kill him. That's how peaceful Jesus was. Everywhere he went, snowflakes fell. (laughs) You know, (laughs) stardust. So why did Jesus... You know what the Christmas carol says, right? Why did Jesus abhor not the virgin's womb? Kids, do you know what the word abhor means? The word abhor means disdain. Okay, the word abhor means despise. Why did Jesus not turn away from and disgust from the virgin's womb? I mean, come on, people, think about this. Why did Jesus come the way you and I came? Why? The last couple of days, this statement in Hebrews has been going through my mind over and over again. Okay, I'm halfway in between blind and can't see. It's so, but I don't want to go to bifocals, so.
you know, this is, I had it all chosen. And marked with a bookmark. And I think I'm going crazy. Give me a second. Combination of losing my place. Here it is, sorry. It's uh, in Hebrews chapter 2. Let me start um, at verse 10. It's speaking about Jesus, and it says, For it was fitting for him, and we're talking about this little baby in the womb of his mother named Jesus. His mother's name is Mary. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things. Remember I said the incredible... Uh, contrast. It was fitting for him from whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. That's us by faith saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. You realize, people, that we are those children. We're the children that God has given Christ. We are the offspring. Every time you make a decision that you're not going to have children, thank your lucky stars that Jesus didn't decide he wouldn't have children. You hear me? Jesus was fruitful, and we are his fruit. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me, and we are a present from God to his son. And then it says this, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. And so what is the same he partook of, our Savior? He took, partook of flesh and blood. Jesus had flesh and blood. He partook of the same. That through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. You know, liberal Christianity doesn't feel any need of rendering the devil powerless. We just need a little image. We need to learn to make the right choices. Just a little progress, a little evolution, a little, a little improvement is what we need, right? And Jesus shows us the path to improvement. But listen to how it puts it. It says, he himself also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now, are you going to cop to that? Come on. Are you going to cop to that? I just abominate the language of liberals today where they, they, they embrace cremation and they embrace death is the natural end of life, and they're so courageous. 
And they're all liars, liars, pants on fire, noses as long as a telephone wire. Because every man fears death. Why? Well, because we weren't made to die. Death is a curse. We all know it. You watch a family lose a loved one, and even if they pull the plug and do it with firm resolve, you feel that loved one being torn away from them. And it's all whistling in the dark. And listen to what he says about this. He says, those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels. <laughs> that's, that's a funny aside, you know. Angels don't need his help. He's not helping angels. But for he gives help to the descendants of Abraham, and that's you and me. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Therefore, and here's the money quote, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things. He had to be made like his brothers in everything. That he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. He had to t take on every aspect of our lives and who we are in order to represent us before God as, as a faithful high priest. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is coming, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And so who is this a sign for? This is a sign for those of us who are tempted. You tempted? How often are you tempted? How often do you fall? Do you find as you get older that you're tempted more or less? Do you find that your temptations as you get older are more pernicious or more snowflakey? Are they cleaner or dirtier? And if your children living in the home with a perfect man, he ain't perfect. Hate to break it to you. And if you went over to your grandpa's house last night and had, well, if his wife had been on her good game, we would have had cocoa, but we didn't have any hot chocolate, but we had a fire. And we had good ribs, didn't we, Josiah? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And is your grandpa perfect? Josiah sat next to me last night and told me precisely why my grandchildren don't like me. He said it very sympathetically. I, I wondered whether I should tell him why I didn't like him. <laughs> the benefits of having your grandchildren and <laughs> getting to preach to them, you know? What's he supposed to do? Come up here and answer back, you know? <laughs> Come on, Josiah, have at it. <laughs> Listen, the reason that I'm critical of liberal Christianity is not because I like to have an enemy, but it's because liberal Christianity absolutely destroys everything that's precious about Jesus Christ. 
Jesus did not come to show us what a real man was. He didn't come to show us peace. He didn't come to make us all into perfect snowflakes. Jesus came to bear our sin. He had to take on everything we are. And as I said, the older I get, the more I'm focused on the fact that he went in the womb. It boggles my brain. He was completely at the mercy of his mother, Mary. When she moved, he moved. When she coughed, he felt it. This is him. And he became in everything like you and I are. Why? So that we don't have any fear when we go and stand before God. Because we have a faithful high priest who has borne everything that we bear. There's no part of us he doesn't know. There's no dirtiness that he hasn't intimate with. None. You might think this morning that you have dirtiness that I couldn't conceive of. And I wouldn't say that if I knew how dirty you were. (laughs) And I tell you, you look in my heart. You remember the Apostle Paul at the end of his life said, I am the chief of sinners. And there's nothing that we have done, absolutely nothing that's a surprise to God. And God himself came into the womb of Mary. He was conceived by the Holy Ghost And he came into the womb of Mary so that he would be in everything the way you and I are. And this is the reason that the sign was what? Swaddling clothes lying in a manger. In other words, even the fact that he wasn't in some fancy bassinet over in Buckingham Palace, which by all rights he should have had that, right? Everything about him was perfectly done in order for us to put away our pride and to humble ourselves in, in front of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's such an awful thing when we claim to serve a Savior and we make such a big deal out of ourselves. You don't have any dignity. Can I break it to you? Your mama don't have no dignity. Your baby don't have no dignity. <laughs> And some of them make this more obvious to us than others. (laughs) You know? None of us have any dignity except that he took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And so, today, you and I should meditate on the manger, and it was filthy. I was sitting here as we were worshiping, thinking how many of us, given the clothes we're wearing, and for me particularly the shoes I have on, I only wear them occasionally, but I don't like polishing them. And so I was sitting there thinking, you know, if the angels appeared here right now, and they told us to go out to your barn with the pigs to see Jesus, would I go? Have you ever wondered about that? Do you think if you were in front of your fire across the street from the manger, do you think you would have gotten up and gone across the street 
especially into that filthy place. Now, I know what it, listen, I know what it was like because I spent a couple years cleaning horse stalls at a boarding stable. So I don't have any, like, real sweet-smelling, sweet-looking, sweet images of what it was like that night. <laughs> Acrid. Steam, if it was cold. Steam. Right? You all know what I'm talking about. Do you think you would have gone? Do you think you would have gone? Would you have gone? Huh? Listen, if you're honest, you should say, <laughs> the best you should say is, <laughs> I hope so. I, I hope I would have. Maybe my children would have made me go. This shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. What's swaddling clothes, kids? Do you know what it is? It's rags that are ripped. So it's, it's, it's rags and lying in a manger. And he's the perfect high priest because he has been through it. He knows what our life is. And when we come to him humbly, he himself, what? What does it say in Isaiah? He himself bears our griefs and carries our sorrows. And this is Jesus. Jesus.